Thank you, Sarah. Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is going to be very much a topical message this morning, so I don't have any particular passage I will be resting in. And yet 1 Corinthians 15 encompasses the most uh, thorough and important of the Scripture's teaching on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we will indeed start there. The title of the message today, The Conquering Christ. Today is Resurrection Sunday. It's a, a special time in the year for followers of Christ. We take the time to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Far from just a, a part of what we believe, far from just a point of doctrine, far from a trivial aspect of one's religion, the resurrection is not only the most important aspect of our faith, but it is also the element of our faith that distinguishes us from any other religious system. That our Savior and the very foundation of our faith system was dead but is alive, not only establishes his authority regarding everything that he has taught, but also his power to do everything that he promised. Jesus made many bold claims, many claims, spiritual claims. And when he rose from the dead... It validated those claims. It validated His power to give us that which He has promised. We don't follow the teachings of a man. We follow the man himself. We don't follow the ideologies and philosophies of a great thinker or a strong leader or a charismatic personality. We follow a man not for how he presented himself, not for his appeal, not for... Uh, his charisma, but because his claims are backed with the unimpeachable proofs of truth. And the resurrection is one of the most compelling of those truths. The very strongest proof that there is truth to Jesus' claims, to his teachings, to his authority, to his power, is the empty tomb. Guarded by Roman soldiers, sealed with a stone, and yet, when Christ's followers arrived on the third day following Jesus' death, the tomb was empty. Then He appeared bodily, not just to one, not simply to the twelve most ardent and devoted of His followers, but to hundreds of His followers throughout the course of many days on several occasions. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, that would be Peter, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. When we go to 
prove the claims of something, we, we try to find original sources. We try to find eyewitnesses. Well, here we have an original source document reflecting that over 500 people saw the risen Lord. Over 500 people could lay witness, many of whom, Paul says, you can go and you can ask them yourself in that day, and they will tell you that they have seen the risen Lord. Proof doesn't come much better than that. Even if you're the very deepest of skeptics, it's extremely compelling. Luke, the physician, described the certainty of the things that had been understood of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he said this, To whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion with many infallible proofs, tokens of certainty, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Many infallible proofs, the scriptures tell us. The idea being that the resurrection of Jesus Christ meets all of the criteria necessary to claim with absolute certainty that these things did actually happen. This is history, not fable. This is true and no lie. So what happened on that day? Well, physically speaking, Jesus arose from the dead. He had been hung on a cross. He had given up the ghost. The soldiers pierced his side and outflowed blood and water. Blood is made up of three primary components. You have the plasma and the white blood cells and the red blood cells. Plasma is primarily water. It makes up about 60% of the composition of what we call blood. The other 40% are the white and the red blood cells. Research has shown that within somewhere between 15 minutes to two hours of a person dying, the plasma separates from the blood cells and the plasma comes to the top and the blood falls to the bottom, the blood cells themselves. When the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, water and blood came out separated. 100% proof, positive certainty that Jesus had died. He wasn't in, in, in some state of, of low respiration. It wasn't some sort of Romeo and Juliet thing, right? Where they get your, your heart rate really low and, and then he revived in the tomb. It, it wasn't that. It could not have been that. They pierced his side and outflowed blood and water. They had separated. He had been dead already. His dead body was wrapped. It was placed in a tomb. The tomb was sealed. Three days later, the tomb was found empty. His wrappings still there. The angel appeared to the first witnesses proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. We read it in Luke this morning. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is risen, as he said. We then enter the aforementioned witness phase where for the next 40 days or so he appears unto many. The men on the road to Emmaus, the disciples in Galilee, the twelve in the upper room, well, the ten and then the eleven, technically. So that's what happened physically. But the physical quickly gave, gives way to the spiritual when we're talking the resurrection, right? It's one thing to prove that Jesus lived and died and, and, and he's, he's alive again. It's one thing to understand the physical, the history of what happened on that day. A man has done the impossible. 
And in doing so, he not only proved, however, the physical reality of his power, but he proved the truth of his message. He set a divine precedent for salvation that undergirds everything that we understand and hold dear about our faith today. Everything that Jesus Christ, that, that we have in Christ, it was established on the day he rose from the dead. And this morning we're going to consider the conquering ministry of Jesus Christ through his resurrection. The victory that Jesus Christ claimed when God raised him from the dead. And as we do so, I pray that we'll be encouraged, not only in what Jesus' resurrection means for our eternity, but also what Jesus' resurrection means for our today, for our here and for our now. Now as we do this, we, we begin first with an important foundation, one which Jesus taught in John fourteen nineteen. He said this, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. Because I live, ye shall live also. The promise of the resurrection is that Jesus has promised us eternal life. And the moment Jesus raised from the dead, the moment He was resurrected by the Father, not only did He secure the path to eternal life through the resurrection, but He proved that those words can be taken to be true. That means if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior by trusting Jesus' death and resurrection, that's what the Bible says, if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If that is you, if you have done that this morning, he lives, and so too shall you for all eternity. Now with this important understanding, consider with me three ways in which Jesus Christ has conquered through His resurrection. First and foremost, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death is conquered. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, death is conquered. 1 Corinthians 15.26 tells us this, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death is the final enemy to be destroyed, according to 1 Corinthians 15, but was also the first enemy to be conquered at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, <coughs> excuse me. So death will one day be destroyed completely. But even though death has not been destroyed today, even though you and I still face the, the, the certainty, should the Lord tarry, of physical death, that death that we face is conquered. That death that we face has been overcome. Now, when we say death in biblical terms, however, we're not just speaking of physical death, are we? When the Bible speaks of death, it has two distinct concepts which, it, with, which it's speaking of. When we think of death, we think of the body decaying and dying, ceasing to live. But this is not the first death that's introduced in the Word of God. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden... God gave them liberty to eat of every tree in the garden with the exception of one, that being the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told them this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The day, God says, that they partook of the tree, they would surely die. Now this is a serious 
consequence. But not serious enough, obviously, to keep them from eating it because we read one chapter later that um, Eve is deceived into partaking of the fruit and she partakes of the fruit. And then she gives to her husband and her husband eats. And First Timothy tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam was in rebellion. That Adam rebelled against God, exercised his will against God, and thus the human race fell into this condition called sin. The Bible tells us their eyes were opened. They understood morality. They, they understood good and evil. They recognized that they were naked and they fled to clothe themselves. But on that day, they did not physically die, did they? But when they ate of the fruit, they didn't just recognize good and evil. Something else happened to them when they partook of that fruit. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we read this. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So something new, something unique, something unprecedented happens on this day. They've partaken of the fruit. They notice they're naked. They go to, to sow fig leaves to clothe themselves. And then they hear the voice of the Lord walking in the Garden of Eden. And something comes over them that compels them to flee from the presence of the Lord. There was, for the first time in history, broken fellowship between God and man. The spirit of life that was in them breathed into them by God and living in open fellowship with its creator had now had that lifeline of fellowship severed so that there was no longer the intimate communion between them and God that they had shared before. And this was the first death. A separation from God. A loss of the fellowship between creator and created now certainly the Lord would curse them and curse the earth and their bodies would begin to deteriorate on that day. They would begin the process of dying, something that they had not experienced before either. And yet they spiritually died on that day so that now each one of us is spiritually born in Adam, dead in our trespasses and sins. This is why... God was so insistent that Adam and Eve be cast out of the garden lest they partake of the tree of life and they be confirmed forever in their state of sinfulness, having never been able to die and thus never be able to experience a resurrection. Even on that day, as God looked forward, even on that day, as God cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, He cast them out of the Garden of Eden looking toward the day that His Son, Jesus Christ, would be sent to earth, would die on the cross, would raise from the dead, would establish the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead so that Adam and Eve could experience a resurrection from the dead. Mankind has always been mortal. When sin entered into this world, sin began to affect the created order our bodies began to break down. Jesus tasted the pain of both of these deaths. He was hung on a cross. The physical death. The Roman process of crucifixion is an extremely brutal form of capital punishment. It was meant to be as much a symbol in its execution as it was intended to be a, a, a suffering and an execution itself. 
It was intended to be a, a hallmark to others where they would look at that man dying on the cross and they would say, I want to make sure that I never go there, that I never get on one of those. I need to control myself enough that they don't put me on one of those. Because the Roman cross, they would hang you on that cross and your arms would be outstretched and you would be affixed to that. Now, of course, gravity would pull you down. As, as gravity is pulling you down, your lungs cannot fill with air. And so you would have to push yourself up with your legs and pull with your shoulders to get up level so that your lungs could expand and fill with air and then exhale as you rest again. Now, any of you who have done squats or lunges can understand that that would get tiring pretty quickly, wouldn't it? And yet, you're fighting for your life every breath. And that would happen until you didn't have the strength to push yourself up anymore, at which point you would suffocate. Now, sometimes they would aid the process along, as we see in the scriptures. They would break the legs of people so that they could no longer push themselves up to hasten the process of them suffocating and thus dying. The text tells us that Jesus hung on that cross from the sixth hour noon to the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And there was darkness over the whole earth in this time. The indignities performed on the God of all creation who was hanging on the cross at that point left nature itself in astonishment and confusion, so much so that darkness covered the face of the earth as Christ bore the wrath of God for our sin. At the end of this three-hour span, Jesus cries out in the Hebrew, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, translated for us in the Scriptures, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Beloved of the Father, nonetheless experienced the separation from God that is spiritual death. As the Father poured all of His wrath for all of the sin of mankind upon the person of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of darkness doing its very worst, no angel to help, no spiritual abatement, and yet we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And again in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Jesus Christ was made to be sin. He assumed upon his spotless self the guilt of each one of us. Not that Jesus Christ became a sinner, but he was reckoned a sinner, judicially reckoned a sinner, punished as a sinner, not with his own sin, but with yours and with mine. And for what purpose? That we, though we cannot become holy in the sense that we are sinners, might be reckoned holy, not with our righteousness, but with His. Three days later, however, the topic of this morning's rejoicing, Jesus rose from the dead. The death which sought to consume Him was swallowed up in victory. 
And considering that time, Paul says this back in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 57. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those verses happened on that day. The capacity for you and I to rejoice in some eternity with the Lord, for us to rejoice in our mortality putting on immortality, on our corruptible putting on incorruption, the hope and the joy, everything that that, that time will mean for you and for me was accomplished the day Jesus rose from the dead. And all who have accepted the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ live in the power of that everlasting life. Death has no sting. Christ has conquered death. Grave has no victory. Christ has conquered the grave. Death is, is a stop along the journey to a better reality in the presence of our Lord. For death has been conquered in Christ. And the text tells us that not only does death have no sting, does the grave have no victory? But then Paul says the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. If the sting of death is sin, but death has no more sting, well, that means that not just death has been conquered, but that which causes the sting of death has been conquered. Our second point, not only is death conquered on the day of the resurrection, sin was conquered on the day of the resurrection as well. From the day Adam rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, mankind has suffered the devastating effects of sin upon this world and upon our bodies. Man has operated under the power of his flesh, which is bent upon rebellion against the one who created it, bent upon rebellion against God. We lean toward rebellion. It is our very nature. Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. He'd go on to say in verse 18, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. He calls himself sold under sin. That's how the Bible describes us. In our natural state, we operate under the abusive servitude of our sin nature. Sin owns us. Sin has every power over us. It drives us. It compels our thinking. It doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that, that this isn't just morality or immorality. This isn't just good person or bad person in the eyes of the world. This isn't just obeying the laws or disobeying the laws. There's plenty of moral people who are still engulfed by the reality of their sin. There are plenty of moral people who are still living in the rags and the destitute mud pit of their sin. And yet, even those moral choices are compelled by some fleshly motive 
until sin is conquered. Paul uses this kind of strong language in Romans 6, where he states in verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. He would go on to recall in verse 20, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Paul says there was a time where you were the servant of sin, but, but it's in the past tense here. What's changed? What made these sinners no longer the servants of sin? Well, he says in verse 17, they had obeyed from the heart the doctrine that had been delivered unto them, the doctrine that we know as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And central to the gospel of Jesus Christ is this reality that he rose from the dead on the third day. Victory over death, but get this, victory over sin. Now, like with death, there are several elements to sin that were defeated through the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. Three, in fact. When Jesus died on the cross, He purchased our redemption, making us free from the penalty of our sin, namely eternal death in a place called hell. That happened on the cross. Peter would say, in 1 Peter chapter. 1 verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We talked about the abusive slavery of sin. Peter tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient payment for our sin so that Jesus purchased the redemption of every man from sin with his own bloody uh, with his own blood excuse me on the cross to that end the divine standard by which men are condemned to hell is not their own sin which is paid for in Christ but rather their refusal to believe on the name of the only begotten son of god John 3, verse 18 tells us this. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. The standard by which a man is condemned or a man is redeemed is faith in Christ. So Jesus' death purchased the redemption from the penalty of sin. But Christ's victory over sin went well beyond just sin's penalty didn't it? Went well beyond just that day where God will have each man come before him and he will open the book and he will say guilty or he will say, well done thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of their, thy Lord. The victory over sin goes well beyond just the penalty of sin. Christ's victory over sin secured two other elements and these two elements were secured not through his death but through his resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. We, we uh, read a parallel to this already. So also is the resurrection from the dead, uh, of the dead, Paul said. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. The first and most obvious redemption element of sin found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is redemption from the presence of sin. So Jesus dies on the cross, he pays for our sin, and we no longer need suffer the penalty of sin. But sin is still all around us, isn't it? 
We still deal with the presence of sin every day. There's been illness this week. I was uh, under the weather. Uh, some other folks in the church were under the weather. Uh, we're, we're dealing with the curse. We're dealing with sin. You have to deal with people that, that dislike you, unkind to you. Um, there are wars that, that are raging right now around the world. There is poverty. Uh, there is hatred. There is murder. There is crime, theft. Sin is everywhere. It touches us every day. We already read in 1 Corinthians 15.53 that our corruptible will put on incorruption. And our mortal must put on immortality. We see a few verses earlier in verse 42 that our bodies go into the grave in corruption, but they're raised in incorruption. Not just free from death, but free from sin. No longer having a sin nature. No longer struggling against your flesh. One day we will awaken the joy of our Lord, having no spot or wrinkle, without any taint of sin. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But it's fun to think about. The day when you won't have to struggle with that temptation anymore. The day where you won't have to fight against your flesh. It's coming. And it's coming because a part of the resurrection is not just eternal life, but it's a life free from sin. So in Jesus' death, He secured our release from the penalty of sin. In Jesus' resurrection, He secured for us an incorruptible body and a home and a place free from sin called heaven. In His resurrection... He secured our own resurrection. Because He lives, so too shall we. The last element of sin that was conquered, also through the resurrection, is most essential to our today. Most essential for the here and the now. That because Jesus rose from the dead, He secured not only your future resurrection, not only your future freedom from sin, but He claimed the capacity to give you victory over today's sin. He conquered today's sin. He conquered sin in you today. It's a wonderful thing to consider that one day we will indeed be free from the presence of sin. But we can stand currently free from the power of sin. What happens when we step out the doors of this church and we're bombarded with the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil? Where does the power come from to resist that sin? It comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is teaching of the blessed release from guilt and from the power of sin. Not just the presence of sin, not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. That our power is not the power of simply knowing what God expects. That's what the law did. The law, the law told us what God expects. That's not enough. We can't just know what, what God expects. Man failed miserably at keeping the standard of the law because the flesh, something inside of us, we're sick and it fights us at every turn. But Paul reminds us that we have the Holy Spirit of God within us. And notice what he tells the church in Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. And if Christ be in you... The body is dead because of sin, 
but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Paul reminds us that even though our spirits have been redeemed from the curse of sin, we still live as Christians in sinful bodies. The flesh is still there. That even though our spirits have been made alive in Christ, they've been quickened, our bodies are still mortal. They're still corruptible. There's still a struggle. But he says, we must never forget that at the moment of our salvation, God gave us of His Spirit to indwell us. And that is the same Spirit, the same Spirit through whose power Christ was raised from the dead. It was the power of the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, and you have that Spirit indwelling you. Think about that for a moment. Consider what that means. That the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. What does it mean? That the Holy Spirit not only gives you the ability to understand God's Word, the desire to do what's right, but He can enliven, quicken, make alive your mortal body so that the sinful body of flesh can actually live free from sin on a daily basis. That as you walk in the Spirit, you are free from the power of sin in your life. Today, tomorrow, the next day, and until Christ comes or He takes us home. You have every capacity through the Spirit of God to live free from sin. And this because the power of the Spirit of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that wonderful event that we consider this morning that we sang about that He is risen, that Spirit that could do that indwells you, lives in you. And the same power that rose him from the dead bodily can enliven your body unto righteousness. Jesus is alive, so death is conquered. Jesus is alive, so sin is conquered. Death, physical death, spiritual death, conquered. Sin, the penalty of sin, the presence of sin, the power of sin, conquered. Third and finally this morning, Jesus is alive, Kings are conquered. Kings are conquered. As Jesus spoke to the Pharisees while he was yet alive, remembering, and let us remember, that the kingdoms of this world have been given to the authority of Satan for this time. Jesus told the Pharisees this, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. Jesus said Satan is a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar from the, the beginning. We know from the scriptures that Satan has authority over the kingdoms of this world, that he compels the mindset of those who are living in unbelief and in darkness. In fact, one of the temptations of Jesus Christ in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, notice what... Satan promised to Jesus. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these will I give thee 
if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Satan could rightfully give Jesus the kingdoms of this world because he has judicial authority over the kingdoms of this world right now. God has given Satan that power, and so Satan had the authority to give that power to Christ if Christ would only worship him, if Christ would not be patient. Obviously, the kingdoms of the world are already his, but Jesus was going to have to suffer for them, wasn't he? Satan says, I'll just avoid all of that redemption and suffering thing. I'll give you the kingdoms right now if you'll worship me. An interesting case study for another day. Sufficient, however, to prove that Satan has the kingdoms of this world under his authority. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 tell us this about Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus, being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Here it is, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every, in that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, there's coming a day, brother and sister in Christ, there's coming a day when at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus earned this honor through his death. Jesus secured this victory through his resurrection. Romans 6, 9 tells us that Jesus being raised from the dead dieth no more. It stands then that if Jesus died and he is risen and he dieth no more and he is at the right hand of the Father and yet every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, it stands to reckon that there's still something yet to come, doesn't there? There's still something on the horizon. It's not all done just yet. And indeed, something is yet to come. In Revelation chapter 7 verse 15 we read this, at the point of the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Fast forward to the end, and in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, we read this And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he just doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Last week was Palm Sunday. We considered at the nursing home for those of you that were there or perhaps for those of you that read the passage on your own the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And we emphasized the fact that at the triumphal entry Jesus rode in on a donkey, a symbol of peace, a symbol of victory, but of peace, not of war. 
a symbol that reflected that as he's going into the city, he is not coming as a conquering king in the sense of, of war. But in Revelation chapter 19, he's no longer on that donkey, is he? He's on a horse. He's on the vehicle of war. And he's coming to make war. And he's coming to conquer the kingdoms. And he's coming to, to exercise his lordship. To become what he is, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And the day that Jesus rose from the dead is the day that Jesus was given the kingdoms of the world where he claimed authority over all things. There's coming a day when he will take it by force with a vesture dipped in blood. The kingdoms of this earth shall unite to oppose the Christ and he will smite them with the sword of his mouth. And the destruction will be great. And the victory which began on that day when Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women that were with them ventured to the tomb on the third day with the spices to anoint the body of Christ. And on that day as they approached the tomb and they saw the stone rolled away and the men dressed in, in, in glittering robes saying in Matthew 28, 5 and 6, Fear not, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Redemption was purchased. Victory was won. Life conquered death. Power conquered sin. Truth conquered the kingdoms of this world. Authority conquered the kingdoms of this world. And as we close today, it becomes for us to contemplate our disposition to these truths in this life. to his power, to his truth, to his life. The first question, the most essential question, the one which majority of us have answered today, is are you on the side of Christ? There's no middle ground with Christ, is there? You're either with him or you're against him. There's, there's no capacity to just sit on the fence and float as a neutral third party. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. He said, you're either in or you're out. So are you in? You've heard the gospel this morning, not directly spoken of as the gospel, but it's been the gospel nonetheless, that you're a sinner. That your sin has separated you from fellowship with God in the same way Adam and, in were, Adam and Eve were separated from God through sin. That because of that separation, you cannot have fellowship with the Holy God. He cannot abide with you. But that there came a day when God, having sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, then sent Him to His death. And He died on the cross. And God made him to be sin for you who knew no sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. But he didn't stay dead. On the third day following his death the tomb was empty. He had arisen claiming victory over death. Victory over sin. Victory over the kingdoms of this world. And the scriptures say 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you've never done that today, may I encourage you to make the day, today the day where you acknowledge your sin and you cry out to the Lord, acknowledging him to be the only means by which you can accept or can receive salvation, the only means through which you can attain unto that heaven that is promised. And if you will do so, the Bible says, all that cry out to him, he will in no wise cast out. The majority of you are believers, however. And so I speak to you secondly. You've accepted the reality of Christ's resurrection for your eternity. You have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You have humbled yourself before the truth of God's Word. You know that you are saved from the wrath that is to come. You know that you have a home in heaven. You, you recognize the, the salvation from the penalty of sin and your future salvation from the presence of sin. But what about the power of sin for today? Do you live every day in the power of the resurrection? Or are you living in spiritual defeat today? Perhaps there are some that are. Perhaps you're struggling with sins that remain unconquered. You're tired. You're frustrated. Maybe you're ready to give up and give in. And yet today we learn that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, what kind of power must that have been? That same power operates inside of you. Today we were reminded that the Spirit of God is able to quicken our mortal bodies so that we need never serve sin, the sin from which we have been redeemed. And maybe today you have been reminded of this power and you need to recommit yourself to a determined effort to live within this power, to submit yourself to the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God can do through you if you will submit yourself unto Him. Sin has no dominion. Christ has conquered sin. Sin has no power. The Spirit of the living God indwells your mortal body. If sin has any power, it's the power that you have given it. It is you submitting yourself back under the flesh that should be and is justly dead to you in Christ. And as we consider throughout this day the victory of Jesus' resurrection, the victory of the empty tomb, we often consider the victory of that day that is past. We often long for the victory of the day that is yet to come. But what about today? Are you living in the power of the resurrection today. He is risen. So sin is powerless in your life. He is risen. So you will rise as well. He is risen. So the kingdoms of this world are ready to be given into the hand of our Savior. This is the victory that was won on that day, established through the empty tomb, realized in every believer, not just in every believer's faith, but it ought to be realized in every believer's life as well. Let's close in prayer.